we're so good at putting out fires that only two to three percent of fire starts actually get away and yet those burn 90 percent of the land area in the united states so those are the big summer wildfires that happen to get away they're doing the bulk of our land management in the western united states right now so i get really excited about thinking about being a little bit brave and thinking about the other 97, 98% of fires that are not burning under wind-driven crazy fire events. Um, I think what it will probably take is from very top up in public agencies, a directive to say, hey, we need to take these risks because the long-term risk of having fire excluded and then show up in the middle of summer is too great. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode six of Living with Fire, a podcast that explores the critical role that fire plays in America's forests, lands, and communities. I'm your host, Amanda Montai, and today we're covering some topics that we probably should have covered closer to the beginning of the podcast, but we didn't, so we're doing it now. Um, I've had a few different people tell me that they felt some of the episodes early on um, have been a little over their head, And the original sort of founding goal of the podcast was to help people without backgrounds in fire or firefighting to be able to better understand fire. So I definitely want to make sure that I'm not leaving any of you behind. To that end, our guest today is Dr. Susan Pritchard, who is a fire ecologist with particular interests in how effective fuel treatments are, as well as how effective prescribed fires are against these sort of large, uncontrollable wildfires that we're we're seeing currently. I asked Susan to provide a sort of fire ecology 101 for you guys, and we also had the opportunity to talk about her current project, which models how fires would have burned and affected the landscape through the last century if they hadn't been suppressed. Anyways, I will let Susan do the talking because she's a whole lot smarter than I am and is doing some really, really cool work. So thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. I did both my master's and PhD um, research on climate change and forest disturbances. So um, especially my PhD, I went way back and studied long-term forest and vegetation change with climate. Um, And since then, I've really moved into fire. And so I um, started studying a lot on um, prescribed burning and um, thinning and prescribed burning, whether it was effective. Um, I've done quite a bit of work on retrospective um analysis of large wildfires and if um, some of the forest management that happened before those fires um, did some good and um since then i've been doing quite a bit on just evaluating how managed wildfires can be harnessed to do some um work on making landscapes more resilient to fire and climate change yeah that's fantastic. Awesome. Well, based on what you just told me, you're, we're going to cover a lot of great topics today. I'm pretty excited. So my idea with talking to you specifically was that I was hoping to give my listeners a sort of foundational, uh, a base of knowledge about fire ecology. I've had a couple people reach out and say like, you know, a lot of what, a lot of the episodes are a little over my head. You know, I'm not really familiar with the fire ecology world. So if you were, for example, theoretically speaking, teaching a fire ecology 101 class, um, you know, first day of class or first week of class, what are some of the topics that you would be covering or what are some of the points that you'd be making? Right. So, I mean, it's a broad topic. Um, and I'm imagining that your listeners are from all over the Western U.S. Is that exactly. pretty much it? And so, you know, one of the things that I would start out with just to entice people into the topic of fire ecology is, is that, um, 
we have a lot to respect and learn from um, the people that lived here before us, indigenous people, and who still live on these landscapes. Um, so many of the um, Northwest tribes where I'm, um, where I live, um, and throughout the Western United States, indigenous people knew how to work with fire in a way that was very sophisticated, and something that I think, um, as Euro Americans, we need to um, get better. So. Anyway, um, when I think about fire ecology, I don't think of fire as a separate kind of natural process where it's always lightning and it's always something that happens to us. I think of it very much as a process that's integrated in the plants and animals we live amongst and absolutely essential. And so that would be lesson number one. It's just that fire is foundational. And whether we're in the whole rainforest of the Olympic Peninsula or in the dry Ponderosa Pine Douglas fir forest that I live amongst, um, you just scratch the surface of the soils and what do you find? You find charcoal. So um, when people ask me about which forest ecosystems are adapted to fire, I say all. So the other thing that I would definitely, um, if I were on a field trip with people to teach them a little bit about what I love about fire ecology is um, I think a lot about how um, all forest ecosystems are composed of living and dead biomass and biomass is burnable, right? And so that's why I could say that fire is an integral process of each forest ecosystem. But um, again, using those two examples that I just shared, how available that biomass is to burning differs so much. So when I talk about the rainforest of the Olympic um, National Park or the Western rainforest of the West Cascades um, in Oregon and Washington, there's plenty of um, fuel to burn, but it's generally so moist, except for this summer, that um, it's not available for wildfires. Whereas where I live in Eastern Washington, the grasses and the shrubs and downwood dry right away, as you know, as a firefighter. And um, pretty much any summer, they're ready to burn. And so um, just looking at that comparison, um, the Ho Raid forest would be a very infrequent fire system, lots of fuel. And so when it burns, it burns big. Whereas um, in the eastern part of the Cascades and a lot of the interior western United States, fires were a lot more frequent. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Awesome. I could keep going. <laughs> oh, no, no, I love it. What I what I was kind of leaning towards um, for my next question was I often make this assertion, and I have in the past on the on the uh, podcast that fire is necessary for our landscapes, and I think obviously anybody in the fire world will tell you that hands down. Um, but a lot of people who are outside of this world don't understand why that is, and like what plants and animals actually well, not only what plants and animals rely on fire to thrive, but also why they and how they rely on fire to thrive. Um, right, right. If you could just so, touch on that a little bit. Absolutely. Um, I've been studying quite a bit about indigenous knowledge and um, so much of indigenous knowledge is place-based. You know, when you talk about um, how people worked with fire and interpreted landscapes, it was very much um, um, at a place. Um, I think that that's a very fair thing to talk about too when we think about the plants and animals that depend on fire. And so I'm gonna zoom in right to an ecosystem that I know and love, and that would be um, ponderosa pine systems. So 
the ones that um, are quite healthy and support the native plants and wildlife species tend to have a lot of fire. And that's not by accident because again, ponderosa pine ecosystems are on dry parts of um, the Western United States. And again, they're ready to burn almost every year. And so some of the plants that um, I particularly love in ponderosa pine savannas are the broad diversity of herbaceous species and balsam root sunflowers are a really good example and um, many of the bunch grasses and so when we i think about a ponderosa pine forest i'm not just thinking about the trees i'm also thinking about the understory plant assemblage that thrives when there's frequent fire if there's not frequent fire what happens is is that that nasty but native species douglas fir tends to come in and grow really well in the shade of ponderosa pine. And um, over time, we've seen this time and time again in many different locations, whether it's Douglas fir, grand fir, white fir, these ponderosa pines get a lot of neighbors and there's a lot of shading. And what happens to that diverse understory plant assemblage? It goes away, it yields to pretty much what we call a timber litter understory. So that would be pine needles and um, not much um, opening for um, grasses and herbaceous species, right? And then um, I know much less about wildlife species, but it is fun to learn a little bit more about just all the wildlife that depend not only on that kind of classic ponderosa pine savanna, but one of the things that I really enjoy when I hear about wildlife habitat is, is that Fires are unpredictable. They'll burn up one canyon and not another. They'll um, potentially burn really slowly on flat ground and then race up a hill. And the diversity of fire, especially as it starts bumping into old fire scars, uh, creates a mosaic of habitats. And so instead of just having one monoculture of a forest, um, fire tends to create very variable habitats. And so um, it's the friendly feast, you know, a lot of different um, places for wildlife to forage and exist. So when I think about wildlife, it's more of just like the broad habitats. Yeah. That's great. And, and can you tell me maybe a little bit about our history of suppressing fires in these areas, maybe how that's contributed uh, or what, what that's sort of done to these, to these forests, especially in Ponderosa forests, which... You bet. Yeah. Right. So um, when we talked about the historically Ponderosa Pine had really frequent fires, um, some of those were lightning. Um, more and more we're recognizing that um, many of them were started by people too. Um, but when we look at fire scar records um, throughout a lot of the interior west, Ponderosa Pine Forest supported fire every five to 25 years on average. So really frequent. And um, when I think about those fires, I don't think of them as just being tidy fires all the time. You know, it's not as if they just always burned just the grass and raced through and were done. Sometimes they blitzed through forests and had pockets of high mortality. And then sometimes they did some really important thinning work on forests and left a kind of clumpy, gappy formation. And so, with the diversity of fire effects and a lot of different fires intersecting with one another, some, some fires would stop in the tracks because there'd been a recent fire, for example. Um, that kind of diversity of patterns on the landscape that resulted from all the fire 
created a lot of different habitats for species. Um, we've really been successful at putting out fires and um, that's been through a lot of different causes. Um, when I was younger, I thought it was all Smokey the Bear and um, I actually told my son that Smokey the Bear was the bad guy and um, unfortunately it came back to bite me. Um, he went up to Smokey the Bear once and told Smokey that he was a bad guy. So I've <gasps> since learned that, um, you know, it's not that simple. Like actually a lot of fire exclusion in Ponderosa Pine ecosystems started when um, people brought smallpox over and native people, indigenous people stopped burning as much. And then there was widespread livestock grazing, which um, grazed a lot of the fine grasses that used to carry um, frequent fires. So way before we got good at putting out fires, forests were already changing. And without fire, Ponderosa um, Pine got a lot of neighbors. So a lot of forests kind of filled in that patchwork mosaic of different ages of vegetation and different types of vegetation, grasslands, shrublands, forest, all become, became much more dense forest. And with that change um, comes what we're seeing as much more um, high severity fires. So there's so much continuous fuel to burn that the very nature of fire when it does come is different now. Would you say that these high severity fires, were they occurring before, I guess what you would say, like European settlement? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So even in Ponderosa pine ecosystems, there were fires of all ranges of severity. Um, however, um, the, how, the large, really high severity fire events, um, that was not characteristic of the Ponderosa pine regime. So just the the preponderance of those events now is what's unusual. So. And that transitions well into um, just kind of what you're seeing in terms of climate and how it's affecting uh, fire seasons and both both fire seasons and fire intensity. Right. So um, we're just warming up and it's just like shocking how fast it's happening. Um, and so with the um, hotter, drier fire seasons as we've seen, so much this summer, we just have more chances for bad fire events. So if you have a longer fire season where snowpack melts earlier and fuels the live and dead vegetation both on the ground and in the forest canopies dry out sooner, that means that there's um, a lot of areas across these western landscapes that are ready for fire earlier and then later into the season. So I've heard that um, on average, fire seasons throughout the Western United States have increased at least a month, if not more. And so with that longer season, then you're kind of hedging your bets against those lightning strikes or accidental human ignitions and wind events. And so, you know, for instance, this summer, we were all crossing our fingers in Eastern Washington that we wouldn't get the lightning or the human fire starts because we were tinder dry. Um, but then sure enough, we did. And um, especially if fire starts are uh, um, accompanied by wind, you know, it's a big fire these days. Yeah, you guys had a terrible season or a terrible week over there. Um, I oh. can't even imagine. I know it's actually kind of, I got a little choked up even starting to talk about it because it's one thing to talk about it theoretically, but I mean, we're sucking smoke and there's so many communities that have been devastated by these fires. And then also as a fire ecologist, that's not the kind of fire I want happening all the time. Like it's okay to have some 
midsummer wildfires, but we don't want all of our wildfires to have that signature. Yeah. And in the future, I mean, you mentioned uh, managing fire to do the same work as what we want prescribed fire to do, essentially, right? I mean, right. managing yeah. it like limited suppression and that kind of thing. Um, can you talk about how that might be? Is that kind of where we're moving in the future? Is that kind of where we're we're seeing the most actual benefit? Um, well, pragmatically, I think that we just need a huge number of tools in our toolbox, our proverbial toolbox. And so um i love prescribed fire i think that it's a really great tool um one of the problems for us has been that um oftentimes we don't have a lot of firefighters on staff year-round and so i thought that um prescribed fires were not being done as much because of smoke regulations but um the literature um suggests that actually sometimes it's about resource availability having the crews available at the time that's really great for prescribed burning so for instance in the pacific northwest april is a great month for prescribed burning but a lot of fire crews are just coming on board getting ready for the summer wildfire season and so um i think that policy-wise, um, we're going to need to start thinking about investing a lot more into proactive fire and fuels management. We've been saying that over and over again. The reality is, is that the Forest Service and other agencies are just overwhelmed by the number of wildfires that they're fighting. And so pragmatically, then we start thinking about those wildfires, right? Like, okay, some of them have to be doing good work because fire is you know, a foundational ecological process. And so I mentioned already that um, I don't want to see just these massive wind-driven summer wildfires doing all the work, which they are. Um, I, you're a firefighter, um, and so you probably know the statistic, but um, we're so good at putting out fires that only two to 3% of fire starts actually get away. And yet those burn 90% of the land area in the United States. So those are the big summer wildfires that happen to get away. They're doing the bulk of our land management in the Western United States right now. So I get really excited about thinking about being a little bit brave and thinking about the other 97, 98% of fires that are not burning under wind-driven crazy fire events. So especially, I mean, we could start with um, fall and think about managing a lot more ignitions just as wilderness areas and national parks do for um, the ecological process of fire so we're not doing that very much um, i think what it will probably take is um, from very top up in public agencies a directive to say hey we need to take these risks because the long-term risk of having fire excluded and then show up in the middle of summer is too great do you see any other paths out of this? Do you see any other like actionable items that we can work towards as uh, fire practitioners, I guess, in general? So two that come to mind um, are, let's see, how am I gonna say this? Um, the reason why I've been doing so much reading on indigenous knowledge is, is that um, I've been pretty fascinated by British Columbia um, that are in a process of reconciliation with First Nations. And um, part of that um, work will be in um, supporting people doing more traditional burning. 
I think that um, it would be very exciting for us in the United States to partner with more tribes, um, especially those that have treaty rights on national forest lands to encourage more um, active use of fire. So that's one area that I'm pretty excited about. I'm actually collaborating with Frank Lake and others um, in North, Northern California. And I'm just, just so delighted that I get to work with the Yurok and Karuk tribes. So that's all just starting though. Um, the other thing I was thinking about is, is that um, it's easy for us to just think about um, restoring Ponderosa pine forests and thinking of those as being the really departed ecosystem. When I think about the loss of fire, I'm also thinking about the loss of fire in mountains. And um, so even though high elevation, cold forests, maybe they're dominated by lodgepole pine, Engelmann spruce, about pine fir, a lot of those forests don't burn very regularly. Like it might be um, only every 60 to 100 years. But what we've lost on those landscapes is the puck marking of fire across broader landscapes. So any one location might not burn um, um, within, let's see, it might not burn for 60 to 100 years, but across that landscape, we've lost a lot of the fire mosaic. And so I'm pretty excited to kind of just talk with managers about the opportunity to try to restore fire, not only in the lower elevation, um, historically frequent fire regimes, but up at the higher elevations too. Living with Fire podcast is sponsored by Mystery Ranch Backpacks. I'm not over-exaggerating when I say that I've spent more time with a Mystery Ranch pack than I have with my family and friends over the last four summers. Every crew I've worked on has used Mystery Ranch's packs, and I've seen them get tossed, stepped on, covered in retardant, and used as a pillow probably more times than I'd like to admit. But through it all, I've never seen so much as a zipper break on one of their packs. But Mystery Ranch doesn't just make fire packs. They've also got packs for hunting, backpacking, climbing, and skiing. I personally love their women's backcountry ski pack, which is low profile, sized for women, and for me has been perfect for resort laps on high avalanche danger days at Mount Baker, or for long day trips in the backcountry. After a whole lot of time spent with a Mystery Ranch pack on, I can confidently say that their products are not only durable and comfortable, but some of the best backpacks in the industry, whether you're carrying a fire shelter, an elk quarter, or your avalanche gear. Learn more and check out their lineup of great products at mysteryranch.com. I saw that you study landscape vegetation uh, and fire dynamics. Can you explain mm -hmm. what that means a little bit and kind of what goes into that? Like what kind of research you've done in that realm? You bet. So one of the projects that we have going on right now, and it's been years, we're finally going to publish soon, but um, is this what if study. So um, when I first moved to Eastern Washington, there was a very large fire event um, called the Tripod Fire burned in 2006. And um, I studied a lot of the prescribed burns that had happened in advance of that fire and how effective they were. Um, and the research was really conclusive, like, wow, prescribed burning really made for a more resilient forest. Um, a colleague of mine, Paul Hesberg, said, hey, did you actually know that within that um, 175,000 acres, there were over 300 recorded fire starts that had been successfully put out between 1940, when the North Cascade Smoke Jumper Base um, started, and 2005, the year before this wildfire. And I was like, 
wow, over 300 fire starts. And he's like, yeah, can you imagine what that pre-fire landscape would have been had some of those been able to burn? And um, so that got us going on this long simulation modeling project where you probably know about some of the fire decision support tools. The wildfire decision support system has a far site which predicts um, fire spread over landscapes. And then they also have some other tools that do something similar. One is called FS Pro. And so it will take weather stream information and fuels and topography information and model um, probable fire spread. And so we actually re-engineered that tool to iterate. And so we went back to 1940 with um, our best approximation to what the 1940 landscape would be. And then we had the fire starts from the um, records. We didn't know exactly where they were, but we kind of like randomly put them on the landscape for 1940. And so we started creating these hypothetical landscapes of okay, well, we have historical weather, we have the historical fire start approximately, let's go ahead and model this fire and see what it would have done. And now we're going to grow that whole landscape one more year forward in time, grow the vegetation a little bit, um, and then we're gonna do 1941 and two and three. And what was so fun about that project was to start seeing when fires started to be dominant on the landscape, not just these exceptional events, but that fire was really the dominant thing on that landscape. And so it's been really fun because with our simulation tool, we can start exploring, let it burn. Okay, let's let all these fires burn. What do we get? And surprisingly, we get quite a bit of old forest hanging out in little small pockets all through that landscape. So that's exciting. But what if we also just look at those managed wildfires in the late season? We can just allow those to burn because we know when the fire starts happen. And so we've been doing some fun what ifs with that simulation tool and just seeing some neat things like, you know, there's some mountain cirques that don't um, support a lot of fire spread. And so, wow, there's some old growth forest that just tends to hang out in those little pockets. And then there's other areas where um, two fires just happen to not um, burn a big patch of old forest. And then those fires are kind of a break for the next fires. And so there's a lot of cool things that we're seeing just in terms of the wildlife habitat, carbon storage potential, um, more resilient landscape that's coming out of that project. That's amazing. That I had like the biggest smile on my face while you were explaining that. that well, it's so nerdy, you know, it's kind of great that you like it, but yeah, it's simulation modeling. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, well, I didn't have any more questions written down, but I was curious. I just had one, th one thought that came up, you know, a lot, all of our forests out here are fire adapted. Um, mm -hmm. are they, I mean, in general. Yeah, I would say. Absolutely. And you, you end up with these high severity fires, like what we've been seeing lately. And I'm wondering how resistant and how able our forests right now are to being able to handle those. These I know. Yeah, that's a really big question. So there's a lot of different ways that we can define resilience. You know, one classic way is to think about that big ponderosa pine with its thick bark surviving. But another type of resilience is on and a way that forests are also adapted to fire is when um, there is a large wildfire event, as, as there was in Western Oregon. Trees actually do really well on bare mineral soil after fire, as long as the climate is con conducive to 
um, allowing those tree seedlings to take root and some of them to survive. So I have no doubt right now with where we are with climate change that in Western Oregon, um, even though we've lost some really beautiful old forests in those fires, um, the trees will regenerate. And so um, Western hemlock, Western red cedar, Douglas fir are all adapted to doing really well in planting their seeds in the bare mineral soil with lots of light and growing. Um, our main concern with climate change is, is that these large high severity fire events that we're so often getting now do clear the slate. And so then these tree seedlings are at their most vulnerable stage of their entire lives. And um, some of them need to survive for that forest to come back. So I'm very optimistic that in Western Oregon, they're gonna get plenty of rain and the forest will return. Um, we're a lot more concerned on um, the margins of sites that are capable to hold forests. And so these would be our more dry, warm, dry um, sites where um, tree seedlings just might not be able to come back because there might be too much drought or um, too little water in the soil for them. And so um, we, I really am, in, let's see what I would say about that. I'm impatient for more restoration work because I don't want to just keep on seeing this, these massive high severity fires. I want to see more resilient landscapes where some of the trees survive and are there to seed in um, the area and also withstand quite a bit of rapid climate change. Mature trees are still at risk, but they're a better bet than brand new seedlings. And is there any real ecological benefit or even any like precedent for stand replacing fires? Like do those hap do those happen naturally? Like oh, I'm sure that they do. But what's right. the like sort of benefit of that? Of like where does that all kind of fit in? <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you asked that question because actually I've heard that um there's a paleoecologist, so someone that studies old ecology. Um, sorry, I'm going to have to be really quick because I'm in another meeting, but um, she talked about all the Pacific Northwest tree species basically being weeds. And weeds do really well in bare mineral soil with lots of light. And so as long as they have water, trees do really well there. And so, you know, across all of these ecosystems, ponderosa pine up to high elevation cold forests, um, high severity fires were part of the natural fire regime. And um, open, light mineral soil is not a bad way for forests to regenerate. In fact, sometimes it's really necessary. And so it's hard for trees to establish in the shade of other trees. And so fires um, fundamentally have always been a renewal agent and that includes standard placing fires. Thanks for listening to this episode of Living With Fire. I hope to do a better job of making these episodes feel a little more accessible in the future. So if you have any ideas or critiques, I would love to hear them. You can follow Living With Fire on Twitter and Instagram, where you can shoot me messages or get episode updates or information. I am not on Facebook anymore because I deleted that dumpster fire of an app last week, and I hope I never have to use it again. Anyways, thanks as always for coming along on this weird little podcast journey that I'm on, and I hope to catch you guys in the next episode.